Thank you, Megan. Hey, guys. It's good to see you all. It's good to be together. Um, it's also nice that uh, it's not too hot in here. I expected to be sweltering, so well done to our AC units. Uh, it's already almost 11 o'clock, so I'm going to keep this very brief. Uh, but I think there's actually um, some really powerful, exciting things that God has for us in this passage of Scripture. Uh, when I was first invited to preach by Simon, um, I actually looked at the preaching calendar and um, kind of got my lines and the spreadsheet mixed up. And, uh, and originally, a few weeks ago, I thought, oh, great, this would be great. I'm preaching on the first half of John chapter 12 where the woman anoints Jesus' feet. And, um, and I thought, That's, that'll be fun. That'll be fun to preach on. It's sort of, there's a lot to go. There's, it, it's, it's not too complex, and there's, it's just a really inspirational moment. And then I came to church last Sunday, and um, Simon was preaching on that passage, and I realized that I had the wrong passage in mind. So I was giving Simon a hard time this week going, oh, sure, you take the easy passage, and you give me this really complex, complicated one. Thank you. Appreciate that. Thank you a lot. Because um, there's so much symbolism in here and messianic language and prophecy and things going on. Uh, and John is doing some very specific things in this sort of bizarre story. And uh, we will get to that a little bit. But what actually occurred to me as I was kind of unpacking this passage and thinking through what Jesus might have for us is um, John, I mean, all, all the gospel writers, but John is very very smart about the order in which he places things. Uh, Simon has talked a little bit about how John doesn't seem particularly concerned with chronology, but he's very concerned about what stories he puts next to each other and how they work together. And as I heard Simon last week talking about um, worship and what we see in this very personal moment of worship that occurs at the house in Bethany in the beginning of chapter 12, I kind of realized that the rest of chapter 12, the section we just read, is, is actually an extension. It's, it's put next to that story for a reason. And last week, Simon gave us a really helpful list of some things that worship is and what worship is like. And um, I felt like he didn't really complete the list. So I'm going to try to, no, I'm just kidding. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to continue that list today because can we ever really have an exhaustive list of, of what worship is and what it means? But I think what John is doing in chapter 12 is he's showing us what worship is, one of the many things he's doing, what worship is and what a life of worship looks like. And it's amazing to me that at this point in the story, the final week of Jesus' life, he is racing towards the cross. Things are really heating up. The moment has arrived. And John takes chapter 12 to say, let's talk about worship. What does it look like when somebody orients their life and their affections and their thoughts and their behaviors in a direction of worship, of glorifying God, of heaping their praise and affection on Jesus? What is that like? What does that do? What, it, what, what is a life like that meant to look like? And how do we sort of find our way into that? And so, um, 
like I said, there's a lot going on in this passage and we'll, we'll do our best to unpack some of it. Um, but, uh, but I just wanna point out some observations. So this, this weird thing happens, right? Jesus shows up in Jerusalem and there's a bunch of people there for a big festival. It's a big celebratory weekend. It's, a, it's, a, it's an event. It's, it's the, 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 the one weekend in the year that's like a big, a big moment for these people where they all make the trek to Jerusalem and they're there to celebrate, commemorate, pray, and worship. And Jesus arrives in the city. And what happens? Well, people begin to stop what they're doing to look to Jesus and to shout things at him. Things like, Hosanna, and blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And for, uh, what is this? Uh, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even, even the king of Israel. And then they start quoting these prophecies about who this person is. And they start bringing palm branches to meet him. And these crowds are sort of lining the street. And what does Jesus do? Well, he decides to get on a donkey and sort of ride in through the city on this donkey. It's a very strange scene that happens. It's this moment of like, like almost spontaneous explosion of worship. And, and it's something that we don't really see very often in our world today. And, and what I noticed as I was sort of thinking through, what does this tell me about worship, is that um, the, these sorts of spontaneous moments of worship are something that, uh, that we don't often get to experience in our world today, at least not when they're oriented towards Jesus. But we often see spontaneous, mo- spontaneous moments of celebration oriented in different directions, don't we? We see people, uh, something happens, there's some moment of, of victory or some, something, that we, we see that the, our candidate won the election. Spontaneous celebration, spontaneous joy. And that's sort of what we're seeing here, but in a, in a much fuller way and oriented in the right direction towards Jesus. So I notice as I look at this, okay, what does this tell me about a life of worship, a life that's oriented in worship towards Jesus? Well, it tells me that sometimes it's public. In the beginning of chapter 12, we saw a very private moment of worship. Now we're seeing a very public moment of worship. We see that it's spontaneous and personal. See, this isn't, um, this isn't a moment, in, in our worship culture that we live in today, oftentimes we go to worship events. Have you noticed this? We go to a Sunday morning or a worship concert or a worship night, and those are awesome. Please come to worship night, it's gonna be awesome. But we go to these worship events, but can you imagine, can you just like imagine for a moment if someone had tried to like plan this event? They would have been like, okay, great, so we've got everything worked out, 7.30 a.m. is sound check, Jesus is due to arrive at 8.30, uh, we've got these awesome palm branches designed for us by Gucci, so everybody make sure you have one of those, we're gonna bring them out to meet him and we're gonna have this awesome party and we're gonna make sure that it's all filmed with a really high quality film so that it can be posted to YouTube and it's going to be the next big thing. But that's not actually what we see here. We sort of see this this whispering, this rumor that Jesus is arriving. He's coming in through the front gate. Quick, let's go meet him. What do we have? Well, we have these palm branches. Let's go meet him with palm branches. In other accounts of this same story, people are taking off their cloaks and laying them down on the ground for the donkey to ride over. It's spontaneous. It's whatever's at hand. It's personal and it's creative. And I've actually seen moments like this in in very small ways. Have you ever met people who just seem to be in awe of the goodness of God? 
or who like have, have a moment of that sort of awe and celebration. This morning, when I first got here, Brother Ken was showing me some photos of some, uh, some fungi, fungi, funguses, mushrooms that were growing in his yard last year. And he was just flipping through, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? And if you know Ken, you know that he's somebody who spontaneously erupts in worship. And Ken said, isn't God just so amazing? Isn't his creation so good? Have you ever met people like that? who seem to spontaneously erupt. And the cool thing about that is, it's not about whatever the latest worship song is or the latest worship trend is or how we've designed this event. It's about you and your personal expression of worship to God. Worship can be public, it can be spontaneous and personal and creative. And also notice that when they begin to worship, they don't stand quietly inside their homes while Jesus passes by outside. They begin to shout, they begin to run, they begin to pull limbs off of trees, they begin to take off their cloaks and put them on the ground. Worship is embodied. This is why we sing on a Sunday morning. Sometimes I get asked as like a worship leader, like why do we sing? Worship is embodied. The scriptures, um, these days we have this sort of understanding. I know I'm moving very fast, but I'm genuinely running out of time, so I hope we're tracking. Uh, These days we have this understanding of ourselves as like, I have a body and I have a spirit. I have a body and I have a mind. Or I have a body and I have emotions, or whatever your classification is. The scriptures don't ever really seem to have that distinction. According to the scriptures, we are actually embodied spiritual beings. They they don't really, the scriptures don't make the distinction between our bodies and our souls. Which means this, what you do spiritually can affect you physically. We actually know this, we know this, right? This is why oftentimes part of our physical healing is part of our emotional or mental healing. This is why the, med- med- the medical industry and the, those who are trying to heal our bodies are often encouraging us also to simultaneously heal some of those emotional issues, some of those things that might be going on that aren't necessarily physical, because those things really do affect our bodies. This is why people say things like laughter is the best medicine, right? Because, because there's, there's something that happens with our minds, our emotions, our spirits that does affect our bodies. But Conversely, what we do with our bodies affects our spirit. This is why if you want to feel lovingly towards a person, begin by doing something loving for them. It's amazing. But this is why when we come together for worship or when we have moments of worship on our own, we embody it. We sing, even if we're not really singers and singing in worship's not really my thing. We sing or we say, we speak out. We might even kneel. We might even actually like take off our cloak and put it down before the donkey carrying Jesus through the city. We might do these sorts of embodied acts that feel a little bizarre. For some of us, I know coming on a Sunday morning and just singing a song out loud around other people is a hugely uncomfortable experience. We do it because we want to bring the spiritual reality into our bodies. Worship is an embodied experience. And that sort of leads into this other observation, which is that when we embody our worship, 
especially when it's public, spontaneous, and personal, and creative, and it's embodied, and we're speaking, singing, kneeling, sometimes worship looks a little over the top. It looks a little bit like too much, a little bit excessive. Like, don't, don't quite, don't, don't, please, don't make us Christians look weird by doing that. It's a little too much. It's a little too expressive. It's a little too, but the cool thing about this is that when we give ourselves over in worship, it's actually the one place in our entire lives, in our entire day-to-day experience where going too far is safe and is healthy, is appropriate, and is good. Because if we go over the top in our worship, can we ever actually exceed God's worthiness with our worship? Can our worship ever outpace God's goodness? So however far we go, however over the top it looks, however much we're just laying on our face on the floor before Jesus and people are looking at us like, what is wrong with that person? However far we go in worship, in this sort of embodied, uh, creative, personal, public expression of worship, it actually is never quite enough, which is why these Uh, these massive, massive emotions that can sweep through us as human beings and these massive, massive longings that we sometimes experience that just feel like they're gonna overwhelm us. Those things are actually meant to drive us towards these infinite feelings and infinite longings are meant to drive us towards the infinite God in worship. It's the safe place to express those emotions, to bring that fullness of our being in a way that won't hurt anybody else, in a way that won't be destructive. It's the place where we become fully alive and human as we pour ourselves out, pour ourselves out, pour ourselves out in worship to our worthy God. So as people are worshiping, and they're having a great time. <laughs> they're shouting, they're screaming, they're throwing things down before Jesus, they're worshiping him with palm, palm branches, but there are some people who aren't into it. The Pharisees, right? The, the, the ruling religious leaders, not so into it. In fact, they have plans to, to kill Jesus and this just solidifies their plans. They already want him out of the way and now when they see what the crowd is doing, that's not, that's not just annoying, that is dangerous. Look at all, look at the way people are going after him. Nothing we're doing is working. Look, we've just got to get rid of him. Because worship, while it's all these things, it's creative, it's exuberant, it's personal, it's public, it's embodied, it can look over the top, it's also deeply subversive. Last week, Simon reminded us that worship is controversial. It's deeply subversive, it's revolutionary. Well, what do you mean? What is worship? What is worship? Well, what are these people doing? They're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. In this moment, they are crowning Jesus King. They're calling him Lord. Problem is, they already had a couple of kings. They had Herod, who was really a puppet 
of the Roman Empire who was ruled by the Roman Emperor. The problem is by calling Jesus king, by worshiping, which is what worship is, it's crowning him as king again and again and again and again and again, we actually are putting him in opposition to whatever else might be ruling our lives, our culture, our world, our relationships. Worship is a challenge to every oppressive system that we live within. And I use that language really like on purpose, oppressive system. Because there's obviously oppressive systems that um, really are harmful to vulnerable people in our world. And when we worship, we defy those systems. But there's also oppressive systems. The Bible talks actually about the enemy, the tempter, and sin itself as an oppressive force. When I am sinning, I am actually collaborating with an oppressor. When when I am giving my heart to something that is not God, I'm actually buying into an oppressive system that will just chew me up and spit me out. And the rescue from the oppression that I experience and the oppression that I see around me is the act of worship, the subversive and revolutionary act of worship to say all these things are claiming authority. All I have given these things authority in my own heart. Yet in the act of worship, I dethrone all of the false rulers, all of the pretenders, and I put Jesus back on the throne where he belongs. When I worship, I am subverting all authorities and all oppressive systems. So worship is spontaneous, exuberant, personal, embodied, over the top. It's this joyful celebration, and it can also be this very subversive act. I love this first song we sang this morning because worship is really that act of warfare, like Simon reminded us last week. And this has been actually hugely helpful for me in the past week since, thank you, thank you Simon, great sermon last week, thank you for that. It's been hugely helpful for me because I'm in a season in my life with immense, immense emotional and spiritual pressures on me every day, immense. And I was reminded last week that my weapon is worship. It's just to speak out, sing out, Just remember who Jesus is. It's to crown him again in my life. It's to heap all affection, all glory on him. That's how I make it through all the pressures that are around me. And then Jesus sort of unpacks this a little more because we're talking about a lifestyle of worship and Jesus is actually really interested not just in what we do on the festival days when he comes riding into the city, but he's interested in what we do with our lives. He's interested in what we do with our lives. So he actually makes this description later on when the Greeks come to see him and Philip and Andrew go to him. He says in verse 23, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Okay, he's talking about worship, right? To be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's obviously predicting his death, but he's also setting the template for how we live our lives of worship. 
So then he explains it more in verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it, but whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's talking about a grain of wheat dying. He's talking about losing our lives. He's talking about giving up. He's talking about sacrifice. Worship, last week Simon reminded us, is costly. Jesus takes it a step further and says, it's actually sacrificial. It's giving not just what you have to give, it's giving more than you can afford. It's giving your very life. And if you're like me, when you hear that, you're like, no, (laughs) I have so many things I wanna hang on to. And then I remember actually the testimony of scripture that sacrifice can be a thing of great joy. Remember that parable Jesus told of the man who finds treasure in a field? He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds treasure in a field and in his joy, he goes and he sells everything he has and he buys the field. Can you imagine him finding just like so much treasure, gold and precious gems, and then being like, okay, well, I guess I have to get rid of my stuff to buy this field. He's found something of such great worth that he's going, what can I get rid of that I may gain this? One time I saw this, uh, this uh, YouTube video, it's like a, an interview with Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa spent her whole life serving the dying and the poorest of the poor in Calcutta, India. And there was a moment when somebody, uh, the interviewer asked her like, what motivates you? Because you just, all day long, you're just serving, serving, what motivates you? And this smile came across her face and she says, every day when I pray in the morning, I asked Jesus, what more can I sacrifice for you? It is my great joy to sacrifice for Jesus. When we become captured and caught up in this lifestyle of worship, we begin just like throwing stuff at his feet. It's not always that easy, but often it becomes this overwhelming expression of how much more can I lavish on him? Remember that passage um, when Paul is encouraging the churches to give generously and he he says, God loves a cheerful giver? I'll never forget this. I heard that passage uh, unpacked once and uh, the Greek word for cheerful, cheerful giver, actually is, cheerful is kind of like a tame version. It actually means like hilarious and hysterical and the actual image is of people like just like taking their wallets out and like throwing them at Jesus' feet. When we get caught up in this life of worship, sacrifice becomes not just an obligation, it becomes a joy. But notice Jesus doesn't just say that this is what he wants on our festival days or this is what he wants from our religious part of ourselves and our religious time or what he wants on Sunday mornings or how we are meant to live our faith life. He's actually saying this is your life. Worship is not just sacrificial, it's holistic. Worship is about every moment of every day. It's about seeing all the things in our life and letting every situation, every every wave of emotion, every conversation, every relationship, every cup of coffee, every new morning, every everything turn us back in adoration to Jesus. Every moment of our lives has a part to play. Every 
experience that we experience internally has a part to play. It's all meant to turn us back to Jesus in adoration, in that spontaneous, personal, creative, embodied, over-the-top, subversive life of worship. And finally, <laughs> I, I could spend another 20 minutes unpacking all the messianic symbolism in this passage. John is very clearly, this is, all the things I've told you so far are like what I see in this passage, that's, and that's great. <laughs> but I think John is trying to do one very specific thing. I think this is John's main point. John is very clearly setting up Jesus as the conquering Messiah King coming to rescue his people. I wish I had time to unpack all the imagery, all the prophecy, all the things people are saying. But what he's saying is this is not just anybody. This is not just an inspirational speaker. This is not just your new friend coming in. This is the King coming back to his people to rescue them and to set up his reign of peace. Simon this morning mentioned that Jesus is called our Prince of Peace. The rest of that passage in Isaiah that, that calls him the Prince of Peace says that of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Jesus is our King who comes to set up his reign of peace that will never, ever, ever and so worship in this moment is not just all the things we've talked about, embodied, exuberant, creative, spontaneous, subversive, over the top, sacrificial, holistic. It's not just those things. It is also anticipatory. It is also always looking forward to when Jesus will come back when Jesus will set up his kingdom of peace in fullness and in power. When I worship, I look beyond the circumstances of my life in this world and I see the king racing back to set up his kingdom. Do you know this? The Bible says that Jesus will come like a thief in the night. That's to say, when we don't expect it. The Bible says that people will be eating and drinking and marrying and having children right up to the time that Jesus comes. We will be living our normal lives and he will arrive to bring his kingdom. And he will not come in riding on a donkey, he will come in riding on a white horse of war to conquer all sin, all evil, all sadness, all sickness, all pain, once and for all, and to set up his kingdom of peace and there will be no end to that kingdom. That is what's coming any day now. Any day now. And when we worship, we look beyond what is right here and we let it lift our gaze to the horizon of our coming king. That's what they're doing. They're welcoming our king who is inaugurating his work here, but who will bring it to completion any day. I'm so out of time. So let me pray and then we'll do one more song in worship. Worship team, you guys can come up. Lord Jesus, 
Lord Jesus. You are Lord. I confess that I have a lot of other things vying for authority in my life, myself foremost among those things. Jesus, right now, I just recognize, I claim, I say out loud with my voice, with my body, that you are worthy of everything I can lavish on you. In this moment, I orient my heart and my mind in adoration. Jesus, I proclaim that you are king here. You are enthroned above all powers and authorities. And Jesus, to you be glory and honor and dominion and authority now and forever and ever. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Let's sing together.